If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please open them to 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. And the title of this sermon is The Word at Work. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. What kinds of things are you grateful for? What kinds of things do you regularly return to God with to simply say thanks? We tend to do this kind of thing around Thanksgiving, reflecting on the year behind us, being grateful for God's blessing of family and friends, shelter, provision. This is good and right. But what kinds of things in the normal rhythm of life are you grateful for? In today's text, we'll see Paul look at the Thessalonians' metaphorical tree and thank God for two specific fruits that he sees. And one of them may be surprising to us. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Our two points for today's text are these. Point one, God's word, and point two, God's word at work. So let's dive into point number one. God's word, God's word. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. First and foremost, Paul thanks God for how the word of God was both received and accepted. He, Silas, and Timothy came into the pagan city of Thessalonica and began preaching God's word. And it didn't fall on deaf ears. It accomplished something. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's understand exactly what's happening here. If we can just kind of mechanically walk through it. Number one, Paul, Silas, and Timothy preached. What did they preach? Well, we don't have to speculate or guess. Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, tells us exactly what they preached. Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is 
the Christ. So he preached Christ from the scriptures. That's what he preached. So, Paul preached. And number two, God spoke. Paul preached and God spoke. Look in our text at verse 13 again. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the what? The word of God. It's so easy for us just to brush over the phrase word of God. But this is monumental. God speaks. The word, the, the God who created the world. The God who sustains the world. The God who paints new sunrises and sunsets every day. The God who holds the oceans in his hand. The God who's sovereign over every molecule in the universe. That God speaks. Let that settle in. He communicates through words to little peon humans like us. He's not silent. He reveals himself, his commands, and general truth of how the world works through words. Do you know how amazing that is? C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. If God speaks, it's of infinite importance. So Paul preaches and God speaks. Third, God speaks through humans. Look again at verse 13. We're going to be here for a while. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. There's three very important theological words for us to understand here. We're going to do a little theological off-roading here. Three words. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. The first one we've already covered. God reveals himself to us. Revelation. And he does this in two different ways. General revelation and specific revelation. General revelation is how God reveals himself to us and to all humanity through his creation. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look at verse 19 very closely. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The first half of Psalm 19 is the same. God reveals himself through his creation. General revelation. Then there's specific or special revelation. 
This is God's written word, what we now call the Bible. God has revealed himself, not just generally, but specifically, in detail, most pointedly in his son, through the scriptures. And this is where we come to our second word. That's revelation. Our second word is inspiration. It's important for us to understand that Paul, the apostles, and the prophets before them were fully human. And they had a unique role in salvation history. God spoke to them, and the Holy Spirit carried them along as they were pinning Scripture. So, is our Bible written by humans? Yes. And is our Bible written by God? Yes. But don't take my word for it. I want us to read a couple of passages. One of them we've already read in our service today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, all scripture. What's all scripture? Well, first, it's the Old Testament. Then, it's the New Testament, the writings of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit speaks through the apostles to recall what Jesus said and what Jesus did. What about Paul himself? Check this out. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do in the other scriptures. First, how encouraging is it that Peter finds some things in Paul hard to understand. (laughs) Second, Peter, who's one of the authorized apostles, he recognizes Paul's writings on the same authority plane as the Old Testament scriptures. So, when we say that, that all scripture is breathed out or inspired by God, we mean all 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. I know I'm only scratching the surface here on this topic, and if you'd like to do more reading on this topic, there's three different books that I highly recommend. brought a couple of them to give away today. Love this one, Kevin DeYoung, Taking God at His Word, Why the Bible is Knowable, Necessary, and Enough, and What That Means for You and Me. Fantastic little book on the subject of the Word of God. Second, 
Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. Um, if you want a copy of this, we have copies of it. We always have copies of this outside. This will whet your appetite to, to study more. And then finally, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. Really in-depth look um, from a historical perspective on why we can actually trust the Gospels. And if we can trust the Gospels, then Jesus is who he says he is. And then what does Jesus say about the rest of Scripture? Fantastic little book on that. So three very short books. Highly recommend them. Uh, there's so much more we could say about this topic. But we've got to keep moving. In short, what I'm saying is that Christians believe that the Bible is written by God. It's divine in origin. And we also believe that the Bible is written by humans. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21. This is the most concise place in Scripture that we see this doctrine communicated. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And here it is. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a Christian view of inspiration. So revelation, God reveals himself. Inspiration, the Bible is both a divine and a human book. And third word, illumination. Illumination. And before we define this word, I want to go back to our text in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 13, again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So they heard the word of God. They received it. And most importantly, accepted it as the word of God. This is important. Who in our text, who is Paul thanking for this? God. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians accepting God's word. Why? Because God is actually the one who does this. He, he enables hearts to accept his word for what it really is. I think of Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says this. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And here it is. For flesh and blood, meaning humanity, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But who? My Father in heaven. It's not flesh and blood, Peter. It's God who revealed his truth to you. We saw this with Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It says, The one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Two more. There's countless texts like this, but just two more. John chapter 8, verses 46 through 47. Jesus says, If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. God enables the human heart to actually hear his divine words. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Do you see that? The spirit enlightening our hearts to know the truth. That's illumination. Simply hearing God's word read or preached doesn't necessarily mean that the truth will be accepted as God's word. I honestly wish it did. (laughs) Then all we would have to do is get on a big loudspeaker and make sure that every lost person in Santa Cruz or around the world heard the gospel, and then we'd be done. But it takes more than simply hearing. One has to accept God's word, and that's a work of God in the human heart. So, revelation, God speaks and reveals himself in world and word, inspiration, God speaks through humans who pen scripture, and then illumination, God enables us to accept his word as his word. Every time we see that in the life of a believer, We should stop and praise God for it. I know that it can seem mundane, but do you ever stop and thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ who believe God's word? Because of our sinful hearts and Satan blinding our eyes, it's a miracle that any of us see and accept God's word. It's worth thanking God for Quickly, I just want to make one point of application before moving on. Do you see why if we believe that the Bible is God's word and accept it for what it is, that if we do all of that, why we take it so seriously down to the the grammar of each word? If God has inspired every single letter of every single word, number one, If that's true, and it is, we don't have the authority to tinker with it, or or to edit it, or to leave any of it out, or to add anything to it. To do so would be cosmic treason, to misrepresent God, and to place ourselves in his seat. But second, if we believe that God has actually spoken in his word, the Bible is worth submissive sweat. Submissive sweat. If we believe that the Bible is God's word, 
We have to come to it with a posture of submissiveness. If God says it, I must submit myself to it. Even if my sinful heart doesn't like it. Or if I don't feel like it. We don't just follow our hearts. Our hearts are deceptive and lead us in the wrong direction all the time. Instead, we follow God's word. We submit to it. But understanding the Bible is hard sometimes, isn't it? You even heard Peter say that about Paul. Hard to understand. Now, side note. We do believe in the doctrine of perspicuity. Fun word. Perspicuity. What's perspicuity? Well, Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, the perspicuity of Scripture upholds the notion that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed for them to be faithful Christians. Perspicuity. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may obtain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Do you see what both de Young and the Confession are saying? Scripture is abundantly clear on all things necessary for salvation. And with that being said, sometimes understanding God's word takes sweat. It takes study. It takes wrestling with the text. It takes prayer. It takes time. It takes community. What I'm saying to you is this. We believe that the Bible is God's word and that it's worth it. It's worth the submissive sweat. Because when you understand God's word, most importantly, you come to know him. Second, you come to know his, how his world works and what he desires for your life. It's worth submissive sweat. Okay. So, point one, God's word. Point two, God's word at work. Last time, let's look at verse 13 again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you see that? God's word isn't just like the newspaper or, or any other book for that matter. When you hear it and accept it as the word of God, it does something inside of you. It's at work in you. The word that Paul uses here for work is the word energeo. You can hear the English word energize. God's word energizes and does work in us as believers. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that amazing? This is one of the reasons why our services here are so intentionally saturated with scripture. We read scripture, we pray scripture, we sing scripture, we preach scripture. Because we believe that God's word with God's spirit will do a work in us. That's what brings true life change. That's what will ultimately encourage us and spur us on. That's what God will use to mold us more and more into his image. So Paul writes that God's word is at work in these believers. And what does the working word do? Look at verses 14 through 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. The word was so much at work in these Thessalonian believers that they began imitating the churches in Judea. But not just in any old way. Not in how they dressed or talked or anything superficial like that. They imitated the churches of Judea in suffering persecution. And Paul's giving thanks to God for this. Remember, I told you that one of these things would be shocking. I believe Paul praises God here for two reasons while trying to give the Thessalonians some more encouragement. Number one, Paul thanks God for their suffering because they're part of a long, faithful line. They're part of a long, faithful line. First, Jesus. Jesus was persecuted by his own people, the Jews. Even though he never committed a single sin, he was delivered over and put to death for who he was and what he taught. Jesus. Second, the prophets. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. This is a stinging rebuke and brings some context to our text in 1 Thessalonians. Matthew 23, verses 29 through 37. Matthew 23, verses 29 through 37. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then measure, uh, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bar Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. 
Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The prophets, like Jesus, were persecuted because of their commitment to God and to his word. So Jesus and the prophets. Third, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We learned in in Acts 17 that this is exactly what happened to them in Thessalonica. They were committed to God and to his word. They were driven out. Do you see how this would be encouraging to this little church that could in Thessalonica? I mean, wouldn't that be a little bit confusing to be in their shoes? You decide to follow God. You're accepting God's word. And then his own people, the Jews, are the ones persecuting you. It may cause you to stop and think, are we doing the right thing here? Paul is saying, yes, you are. Stay the course. You're in a long line of faithful people who were committed to God and to his word. He's saying, I praise God to see that. Be encouraged that this is fruit, that you're on the right track. So that's one reason Paul's giving thanks. Because he sees that they're in a long line of faithful believers. Second, I believe Paul praises God for their suffering because he knows that it's redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. Hear this loud and clear. Only Jesus' suffering is redemptive for us in a saving way. Only Jesus' suffering can cleanse us from our sin and justify us before a holy God. So that's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is this. Suffering in the life of a Christian is redemptive in that it grows us to be more like Jesus. John Piper gives five reasons why suffering takes place in the life of a believer. Number one, repentance. He says suffering is a call for us and others to turn from treasuring anything on earth above God. Repentance. Two, Reliance. Suffering is a call to trust God, not the life-sustaining props of the world. So it teaches us to rely on God. Three, righteousness. Suffering is the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father so that we come to share in His holiness. He uses suffering to sanctify us. Fourth, reward. Suffering is working for us as a great reward in heaven that will make up for every loss here a thousandfold. Fifth and finally, he writes that suffering is a reminder. Suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. What I want you to see is that suffering is never in vain. God is always doing something in and through Christian suffering. If you've never heard the song, Though You Slay Me, Uh, by Shane and Shane. I highly recommend going and watching it on YouTube this afternoon. Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane. 
It's a song all about that, how suffering produces something in us as Christians. So Paul thanks God for the word that's working in them, resulting in them enduring suffering. Because it's evident that they're in a long line of faithfulness, and because he knows that God's using that suffering in their lives. In closing, I do feel the need to say that this text specifically has been accused of being anti-Semitic or against Jews as a nationality, but it's not. It's so clear from other texts in Scripture that Paul himself loved his fellow countrymen, the Jews. In fact, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes this. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews there. This isn't about nationality or ethnicity. Paul isn't an anti-Semite. He was Jewish himself. This is about anyone who stubbornly and persistently rejects God. Anyone who opposes Jesus as the Messiah King. In Psalm chapter 2, we see that this is much more than just the Jews. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The nations. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Further down in verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you see that? People from every nation are rebelling and raging against Christ, the Lord's anointed. And what Psalm 2 is telling us is that they will experience God's wrath. The only solution to that comes at the end of the psalm, starting in verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Jew or Gentile, American or African, we all deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Our only hope, according to Psalm 2 and the rest of Scripture, is to kiss the sun or to pledge allegiance to Christ our Lord. Our only shelter from the just wrath of God is to take refuge in Him. And we do that through repentance and faith, turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus, who died on the cross for our sin, who was buried and rose from the grave three days later.
If you're not a Christian, you can become one this very moment by doing exactly that. By repenting and believing. By taking refuge in Jesus. Do you see the power of accepting God's word as God's word? It works in you. It changes you. It empowers you to endure suffering and even persecution. It's powerful. It's active. It's God's word. Let's pray.